I don't think uh, Have you been playing my records? Maybe, maybe. Yes. So didn't I tell you the procedure? Yeah, you told me all about it, Shrevy. They have to be in alphabetical order. And what else? Uh, they have to be filed alphabetically and according to year as well. And what else? <laughs> so embarrassing. What else? I don't know. You don't know. Well, let me give you a hint, okay? I found my James Brown record filed under the J's. Instead of the bees, I don't know who taught you to alphabetize, but to top it off, he's in the rock and roll section instead of the R and B section. How can you do that? It's too complicated, Shrevy. See, every time I pull out a record, there's this whole procedure I have to go through. I just want to hear the music. Too complicated to just keep my record. Okay, we'll interrupt Daniel Stern there. Um, <laughs> why, why, why were you uh, so taken aback by my choice of clip? Uh, because when today's I, episode when i first saw this movie which was actually not that long ago maybe like five years ago i actually watched it for the first time that scene stood out to me like oh like that sounds like a fight that if i got married when i was like 22 <laughs> that's the type of fight that i might have with my mm-hmm, wife mm-hmm. and it was embarrassing the whole thing is yeah. absolutely embarrassing oh yeah it, it 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 hit a little a little too close to home for sure yeah very close um, to home <laughs> I, I, I'm noticing some uh, l- prominent silence from our guest. Um, special guest. Special guest Molly is back on the, the pod. Thank you, Molly, for joining us. Happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a lie. Uh, I mean, I haven't been here in a while. I got, I got blackballed for a couple seasons, so, you know, happy to be back. <laughs> You were uh, you were for Body Heat. Do you remember? Body yeah, that was that was a while ago. Yeah, that was the last one. Yeah, yeah. Was yeah, it? Was that the last one? Yeah, yeah. It's been a while. Oh it was it was blackball for multiple ago, seasons. Blackball. Three wow. seasons ago, maybe two seasons wow. ago. Rough. I. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, it's film trace. Oh yes, we trace the life of a film from conception to production, all the way to release and reception. We're doing a movie set in the 1950s, um, and we're doing the 80s, uh, the 80s decade, their interpretation of the 1950s. So two films that were released in the 1980s that were set in uh, the 50s. The first one, uh, these are both my choices, weren't they? I think, Chris? Maybe? I don't know. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm losing you guys. Oh, you still there? Molly, can you hear me? Yeah, I'm here. I can hear you. Oh, weird. Where's Something's Chris? up with your your audio, Chris. Because I can hear. Chris, you still there? You're gonna have to come out. Try coming out and come back in, Chris. Every oh, no. Yeah. I can. I can cut that. Okay, I'm post. good now. Post. Do it in post. Um, I'm gonna do a clap. Can you hear me now, Chris? Are you good? Yeah, yeah. You were all good yeah. now. Sorry about that, guys. There we go. It's easy enough. Um, were these my choices, Chris? I think they were. Yes. Yes, they were. Uh, and I specifically chose Desert uh, Hearts to have uh, Molly back on the show because she so graciously told me to watch it. How long ago was that? Maybe three or four years ago because it was on Criterion. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, she was right. It, it's amazing. Uh, and so I wanted to have well, two reasons. One, I think it's a really interesting movie to talk about 
uh, the 1950s and films set in the 1950s and how that interpretation is can be so different depending on which decade or which director chooses to depict it. Um, but Chris, you've never seen it before, right? No, no, I uh, hadn't even heard of it. At all? Never heard of it? No, no. And then, of course, like when I do research uh, for the episode, I'm like, how have I not come across this movie? Female um, director. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I'm like, like Molly, how did, Molly, how did you find this movie? Did you sort of, was it when you were younger or recently? Yeah, I saw it a long time ago. I don't remember when I saw it, when I first saw it. Um, but yeah, then when it, it, whenever they put it on Criterion, I noticed I, wa- I rewatched it and then I told you to watch it. Um, yeah, those of us who know, no, I don't know why you didn't know. <laughs> I mean, I think you have to reflect on that, why you didn't know that. Right, yeah. right. Well, I think especially because uh, when I teach... Uh, I do a little unit on romance films and I like specifically made sure to uh, have films representing multiple perspectives, including queer films. And I like, I, I don't know, like it, it, it just feels like it's, there is some kind of uh, missing access point unless you like, you just came across it on crit- on the criterion channel. Is that what you're saying? No, I mean, like I watched it like twenty years ago, probably for the first time. I was saying gotcha. I saw it again on Criterion, and that's when oh, I okay, like, okay. watch it. Yeah, how did gotcha. you come across it originally, though? Twenty years, who knows? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know originally, but I'm saying like I think it's my interest in probably seeing films and finding films by female directors or queer films or stuff like that probably predated your individual interests in that. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, Chris, first time seeing it, what'd you think? Did you like it? Yeah, I, I was I was floored. Um, I was very much just like, where has this movie been? And I know that it's it, it seems so simple, but it really is. I think kind of like what you were saying, Molly, is like, not only was it a female director that largely didn't do much afterwards Uh, she worked a lot in television but uh also just like this cast was stellar but like the most famous person in it is jeffrey tambor for like three scenes so it seems like it is kind of uh uh i mean obviously like i I, i'm constantly watching things from criterion and uh trying to gain all kinds of like understanding and knowledge of film. I'm just so, I'm just so happy that uh, it's another blind spot that I didn't even know I had that is taken care of. So I, I'll thank you, Dan, for choosing it and give no credit to Molly. (laughs) Molly. (laughs) This episode's going to be spicy. Okay. (laughs) Well, I mean, also to the point that like, it was not a, it did okay at the box office. It was not received very well. Uh, right. released um and then the box office was okay budget was 1.5 million we'll talk about how she actually raised that money which is a, a totally crazy story um and then box office was 2.5 so not like the worst thing in the world but it wasn't like a massive huge hit or something like that so that's probably another reason why you know it wasn't maybe uh, the easiest film to remember it didn't make a huge splash culturally um but yeah i mean uh I think it's like I think the th- it's 
I think another film technically, right? It's right completely at the end of the day. Like there was no major studio uh, that helped on the production. It was essentially um, just Donna and like everybody else. Basically, she raised money to fund the film, like a really old school way of doing it. But it, and it took like I think six years to raise right. enough money to do it and it was all including like a big check from gloria steinem and yeah. various other you know women's groups yeah uh because it was seen very much as like a political statement as much as it was also just like a a narrative ad- adaptation just like really solid romance story um i think it's incredible that you have uh this kind of movie that like can really hit hard on a first viewing even you know 30 some years later and yet even though it's controversial subject matter for the time period um it plays as a as a very kind of traditional hollywood romance um yeah oh yeah that was the intention regardless of the of the queer aspect yeah 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 like i don't think that there was i think she i'm trying to find this source but um yeah, there was no intention to make this as like a polemic film or anything like that, like a hyper political film. It was supposed to be like basically a romance genre piece, um, just that right. the characters were, you know, not your typical characters in the lead roles. And the romance wasn't the typical romance, but it's kind of like it hits a lot of the sort of traditional romantic film tropes. Um, it, you know, that's not really a knock against it per se, it just wasn't like supposed to be this radical film. Right. And maybe, I don't know, maybe that's one of the reasons it didn't land as big as it maybe could have. Um, I don't know. Uh, Molly, what do you think? Do you, when you watched this for the first time or recently, did it feel like you, like there was like a political agenda or is, did it feel like a polemic or did it feel kind of like a more traditional romance to you? I mean, I don't think, I mean, it's a romance, but what, uh, I mean, I think it's, what I would argue is I think it's, it actually is political, like telling, which I feel like you guys intuitively understand, like telling certain stories inherently is political, you know, just like Mm -hmm. talking about, you know, just even like the, uh, you know, the sort of nice little like niche historical thing of having to go to like certain counties or States, be able to get divorces and have to live there and establish residence for a certain amount of, you know, these sort of like historical kind of things that women have to go through like that sort of piece dealing with, you know, I think sometimes it feels like in order to be political, it has to be like whatever the sort of, I would argue a lot of those political type movies that we think of those like biopics of like whatever. And, you know, people doing some historical protest thing or a court case or this or that or whatever, where it feels very like, someone explaining to you why it's political or like reestablishing a historical <laughs> event as opposed to just telling to me, it's political in the sense of like, when, do, when what other movie can you think of where you sort of get a character like that? The first time I saw it, I remember being like, that is super fascinating. Just like the divorce stuff. Right. And the residency yeah. and sort of the, just this, the, there was like, Oh, these places where it was like, they would host women who needed divorces because they have, you know, that piece to me, I'm like, what else have you ever seen that on, on screen? Yeah. I would, I've never seen anything yeah. else that depicted that. So that was like a sort of, again, insight into the sort of navigating, trying to like navigate bureaucracy for women 
you know, having to deal with like kind of establishing their own political agency and how they circumvented that's of that little like sort of piece, you know, obviously the queer love story and how the like, you know, ta- like family members and that kind of stuff handle it. I mean, I would argue it's sort of political, like the, you know, like to have characters who like aren't especially like, and to have queer characters who like are not ashamed at all of their queerness, you know, like Kay is just like, yeah, I am who I am. She's never, she's just very confident in who she is. Um, you know, and that sort of seeds like Vivian's response to her as like a character too, which is just kind of a beautiful thing. Um, so yeah, no, I disagree. I think it's actually, you know, just, it's not a splashy Hollywood, like speech political film, but I actually think it's just political in the sense you don't see that stuff on screen rarely. So. Well, it's also right. like, and so you know, go ahead. It, it, it was just gonna say like, it, it, it's arguably more powerful that way. Right. Because then it can be, uh, it, it feels a lot more, um, baked in rather than like forced. Um, you, the kind of thing you're talking about, I joked and coughed and said Aaron Sorkin, but like, I think you were on the episode, yeah, right? That yeah, we talked trial. about trial of Chicago yeah, seven, yeah, or it's like that movie is almost like rendered inert by the amount of explaining it does about one of like the, you know, most interesting times in American history and volatile times in American history. And so we have here, uh, I mean, it's all, it's all, it's like the personal is the political, right? So like by giving these characters such depth and like you said, the, the bureaucracy of divorce in the 1950s. And then also there's the whole class thing going on between um, uh, people living in this small town on the ranch and uh, Evelyn from, you know, New York city as a college professor, it feels like there, there are so many political aspects to the story, but that, that isn't what is trying to be showcased. What's trying to be showcased are the people. Cause like, that's how, that's how movies become powerful as we get attached to these, you know, relationships between and conflicts between people. Yeah. I mean, I think that like, but I mean, I guess when people say a film's political, there's often this idea that even going back to Sorkin or anything like that, that there's some sort of deeper point. There's some sort of um, political stance or ideology that they're trying to get across. Right. And I think with this film, uh, there just isn't something there that's like that. You're all, I mean, you're all 100% correct. Every piece of art's political, every sort of representation and um, just showing people um, being themselves and being living out their lives. That's kind of a political thing. It can be, but on the other hand, to me, there's just not like a, there's not like a, here's the point, which is probably good because those movies tend to fail and not the point usually doesn't get across and it becomes saccharine or kind of pointless. But I think there's, there's, uh, there doesn't seem like there's some sort of like, Hey, you all should see or take away this from the film. I, I guess do you guys think that there is something like that in there or is it just is it more way more complicated than that i mean i think this is a good time to talk about the ending yeah of the movie um we uh did an episode on brokeback mountain a couple of seasons ago and the big thing that kind of stands out like a sore thumb about that movie uh almost 20 years later is you know how much that the the, the queer love in that 
movie is couched in. Um, I'm sorry, I'm laughing because Jess just walked by. Yeah. Uh, is couched in um, this kind of like uh, tragedy story. And I think uh, our guest Amanda on that episode talked about, you know, the, the barrier gaze uh, trope of when it, you know, that's what, ha- that's how you're able to make a mainstream motion picture with queer characters. <coughs> and that doesn't happen here with Desert Hearts, right? That ending is huge to it. It's not necessarily a 100% happy ending, like yeah, classical happy, but it's, it's very much does not end with tragedy. Yeah. And I think also, and maybe like the ending to me, and I think the first time I saw it, I was like, okay, uh, I sort of um, think I know what's going to happen. I mean, what's your interpretation when Kay gets on the train? Is this like, is Kay saying, yeah, I'm going to come with you to New York or are we going to stay in uh, Nevada? Um, I don't know, Molly, what do you think the, the ending sort of implies or is it just open-ended to some degree? Oh, it's one of my favorite endings of all time. I think that's yeah. just, the ending's just perfect to me. Like that to me is, I don't know, like just her saying like, I like they're literally, I cannot think of a another ending that I love more than that. I think sort of from just like a relational standpoint of just her being like, like, what do you want? And she's just like, I just want to spend 40 more minutes with you. Like that's all, that's the ask. That's like, and isn't that the ask for mm-hmm. like anything when you love somebody? Like, it's just like, I don't know. I just want to just keep, I just want to, that, that's it. Right. you just keep asking that over and over again of somebody yeah. until, <laughs> until you don't anymore. And it's just like the, I feel like the beauty simplicity of that, of just, I don't think I never asked about like what happened after that. Cause that doesn't, I don't know that doesn't really matter in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. That's the ending is just right. I, it feels like the story is complete there like that's if if you're looking for a thesis statement of it i think that's a pretty good one molly that like these characters you know have so many reasons made up real otherwise that uh for for not like committing to each other um and i mean that's inherently political too right because we're not we're not just talking about queer love we're talking about just like relationships in general marriage or partnerships or whatever you want to call it and at the end of it all, it's like they're, and it happens multiple times before the ending of the film. They're just consistently coming back to each other. Like I also really love the the part where they get into the huge fight uh, in the car and talk about who's going to drive and who's going to walk, and then it's just like cut to like everything's fine because like that's how those things work. Like it's not as if there's you know true resolution, yeah, because. The, that love is, you know, trying to make things work and then things hit a road bump and then it's like, but we're going to keep choosing another 40 minutes. Yeah. Um, one of the things that stands out to me is like, uh, the way this movie looks is phenomenal, by the way. I mean, it just, like, yeah. it, it's beautifully shot. Um, Robert Ellsworth. Yeah, Ellsworth, who did Michael Clayton. One of, uh, yeah, and there will be blood, and yeah, Syriana. Can I toss that out there? <laughs> oh God, okay, that's a bridge too far, Dan. Uh, it looks beautiful. I seen like on the Criterion Channel. I feel like it's coming across in like 1080p or something like that, 
and I, I feel <laughs> like I'm missing out something without seeing it on Blu-ray or UHD, whatever it is these days, and like 4K. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it just it looks gorgeous. What's also like blows my mind about this movie, not only was like the funding just you know scraped together from like um, just the hard work of the director, um, it, like constantly pounding the pavement, going to meet people, networking, trying to raise like you know fifteen thousand dollars at a time, literally is what she was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fact that like, because the budget was so tight, they only had what 30 days of shooting essentially, or 31 days of shooting, yeah. um, which basically required them to shoot two scenes every day, no matter what. And if they couldn't get that scene in, it was tossed. And I kind of noticed, I noticed that a little bit in the flow where it's sort of like, one scene from another it's sort of like oh it feels like there's something that might be missing so that doesn't but it's not like that noticeable i mean how the means of production for this movie are like we're tough i mean like tough across the board but the end result is something fucking phenomenal i mean i you gotta have to wonder like how all the elements came together here to make something because a film is not just a person it's not just the director Right. It's like 50, 60 people like at the top of their game, just hitting, hitting the right note at the right at the right time constantly from the moment that first like we're writing the script together, essentially, to the moment like the final edits done. Like it has to be such a succession of successes, essentially. Uh, It's always like mind blowing to me when movies like this even exist, because it's just it's just outrageous, like how it all came together the way that it did through like an enormous amount of hard work. Um, I mean, uh, Ma, did anything stick out to you on your rewatch that felt anything different than when you first saw it back in the day? No, I mean, I just like, I think you guys were saying or commenting that, you know, there's elements that sort of whatever it is like a, you know, a sort of romance story, but it's just, I don't know. Again, there's just something specific, which nobody has felt comfortable saying yet. It's like having two female leads. <laughs> like to yeah. me, it tells a different kind of love story. There's a different texture to it that you can't get with like having to having it, the central characters be women, you know, and having the movie basically be, you know, almost solely from like multiple women's perspective is just like, there's like literally no other like romance movies like that. I mean, like maybe portrait of a lady on fire is like, like maybe like another one that sort of more people have seen or whatever, but it's like such a rarity that there's Mm -hmm. just a feeling when you're watching it, that's just so different than you do when there's just like men's, and stories intruding on the situation um so that just always feels it just like has such a different feeling watching it and like i said there's just this sort of i don't know just like tenderness maybe is the word i'm looking for gentleness but not Mm -hmm. like in a cloying or not in like a you know infantilizing way it's just literally like holding these these people are just held so humanely and like tenderly and just and help hold each other that way and like how it unfolds that i just think is like regardless of 
whatever. We just like don't get that kind of thing in most romance movies. Um, so I just, it's just always just such a like nice little cozy experience watching that movie. Yeah. That's a good word for it. Cozy. It fits like the, like like the cinematography that you were mentioning, Dan, where it's like it, it, and I think that fits with like the, the vibe of it, uh, um, kind of resembling those old Hollywood romances just with a queer love story and two female leads. Um, and yet there's like this, uh, I don't know. There's also like a lot of it's tender. Yeah. But there's still like a lot of passion on screen, like from the, the purples and, uh, and different like neon hues of, uh, the nighttime scenes. And then obviously like the, pretty incredible love scene that was probably just as revolutionary at the time as the film itself, where you have a very kind of, um, I don't know. There's, this has been like the, the main, I feel like it's always coming up on, on Twitter nowadays, right. Is the, the kind of, uh, almost stereotypical Gen Z point of view about, uh, why are there sex scenes in movies, right? Where it's, uh, I think that I think you could easily point to this movie and um, show like how meaningful it can be, not just considering like the time period and the subject matter and uh, the importance of that, uh, but also just to see like how how much it really kind of solidifies their relationship. Like their, like their chemistry between these actors yeah. is just as important in that scene. In fact, it's arguably, you know, the kind of centerpiece of the film to see how, how that connection happens and everything that leads up to it and everything that comes after it too. Yeah. It's, um, is there a favorite scene that you guys have from this movie? I can tell you right now, my favorite scene is without a doubt the way that they look at each other um, at like the restaurant uh, when their friend is singing and they're mm. with their quote unquote dates and they're like looking at each other. Uh, and it's like that whole sequence up until when they drive out to the re- reservoir, I guess it's a lake. Um, and then the, you know, that sort of the back and forth and the rain coming down and the whole thing. It's just, um, I'm, I'm a sucker for romance movies. Like I love them. Um, and it's just one of those scenes where the, the building of the attraction and emotion is just so palpable. And of course it's like, is it a little bit tropey with the rain coming down? Yeah. Who cares? It just works. It works incredibly well. Um, And it's just, and I find myself on the rewatch of this, just like multiple scenes like that, especially the hotel room where it just, the way it's orchestrated and the way the two actors move throughout this, uh, the scene and sort of their, you know, acting's kind of like dancing with each other on screen to some degree. And the way that they do it is just phenomenal. Um, And it, I don't know, there's something about, the magnetism between the two that really just like flies through the screen, even like 40 years later now. Um, Molly, you said the ending is, you know, one of your favorite scenes. Do you have any other scenes that sort of pop up into your mind? So like they're kind of burned into your head. Burned into my head. Um, no, I mean, I think the sequence you're talking about, um, I mean, honestly, like any sequence where the two of them interact because, yeah, 
you know, like when she go when she first like stops by her house, it, like they just always have like <laughs> to be able to like witness the just like the progression and like you know almost like the they just play it so well of like there's just something immediate and organic between them you know that like again develops over time again and in a way that you can't it's just there's just something so um i don't know what i can't articulate the word but um just something oh wonderful humanizing that you can't do when you're telling a love story that's involves a man sorry um it's just true (laughs) you can't you can't do it you know what i mean there's just like an element there to like how you know two women can fall in love and sort of how that can play out and what can be revealed about their characters um and just like shown in a way that I don't know. Anyways. So I just, yeah, I think just like really any scene with the two of them is just, it's just always fun to watch because it's just so well done their chemistry and like how it develops throughout the movie. So. And like Donna Deitch, the director, the, these two leads also kind of uh, unfortunately faded into obscurity after this movie, Helen Shaver, um, probably had more of a quote unquote acting career afterwards. Uh, but it was like tremors two aftershocks. And I think I remember in that she's in the craft. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. And yeah, bit roles in some bigger movies too. Um, and then, but Patricia Charbonneau who pops off the screen just as much, like you mentioned earlier, Molly, like the way that she exudes confidence as Kay and, she fully inhabits this character and that chemistry is palpable. And yet she also was kind of uh, given scraps afterwards. Um, Did more, a little more TV like, uh, like Donna Deitch did. Um, But yeah, mostly like straight to video and B movies. Uh, She had a bit part in she's all that um, as uh, one of the moms. Um, but I don't, I like, it's just unfortunate. Like I'm, I'm curious because this movie was so ahead of its time. Um, was there a kind of, uh, effect because like Helen Shaver says in an interview, how her agent, you know, kind of tried to convince her to not take the role because she thought it would be the end of her career. Um, because it was so difficult to just cast in the first place, so difficult to fundraise and and uh, produce in the first place. Uh, is it a, is it an unfortunate truth that as much attention as this movie is finally rightly getting with the help of Criterion and other, you know, I'm sure other uh, film organizations, um, and you know, Donna Deitch is even back doing you know anniversary interviews yeah. and press screenings and stuff and talking about you know trying to. Uh, get it together enough money to make a sequel. <laughs> um, however many years later, it, it was, was this an unfortunate side effect that like they, I, I maybe it's too, uh, there's not enough evidence to say one way or another, but I just, is, what do you guys think? Well, I mean, um, my, why don't you go ahead? What do you think? Oh, I mean, I, 
I mean, probably, yes. I I think we all know, well, or we all should know how <laughs> like Hollywood treats most women anyways. I think, like, Daniel yeah. Day-Lewis didn't get blacklisted in the 80s for, like, doing right. gay roles. I, I mean, I'm assuming it's a combination of that plus the fact, as you pointed out, there was... This wasn't a studio movie. Like, this wasn't, like, yeah. they did something that had them on a track, like, to be more successful. Like, I think it was just this wasn't um it may have contributed but it was also like they just weren't it's it's the unfortunate nature of the business too it's like there's really talented people who do not ever get what they deserve or don't really get chances to showcase their talents i mean the directors like that as well i mean you know what i mean there's just yeah it's like hollywood is littered with super talented people that you're like holy shit these people should have been super successful directing a million movies starring in a bunch of stuff like whatever. And they just don't get shit. So, I mean, I think it's like both of, I think it's, I'm sure it's both. Um, but it's just harder for women period. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, to kind of yeah, break out of that stuff or like, if there's something that's kind of designed, I mean, Wiper and I were just talking about showgirls the other day. I mean, like that's yeah. another classic example where it's like, they're like, there's, I remember like even reading, um, an interview with Paul Verhoeven where he like, he actually said, was like, well, thank you for like admitting it at least like where he was like, yeah, like Elizabeth Berkeley got like the worst of all of that. He's like, I yeah, actually should have been the one, if anything, who should have gotten the worst of it. Cause it was my choice to like depict people that way and like making, cho- you know, or whatever. And he was like, but she got the worst of it and that wasn't fair. Like there's just there's just the mechanisms of how Hollywood works in general for stuff. It's like women tend to in certain things, take the, take the brunt of stuff or not get first, second, third chances on things. So I'm sure this didn't help either of them being in a movie like this, but I also don't think it wasn't like it was like in the newspapers everywhere and like whatever. I'm just sure it didn't help them, but also being a woman in Hollywood is what probably ultimately set all three of them back unfortunately so yeah i mean can you, i mean think of it this way like this movie won the special jury prize at sundance in 86 it's like if you had a man who did that there's no doubt in my mind that like he gets not like you know free reign on his next movie but he gets his next movie right like he yeah. gets 10 million whatever it would be back then 5 million 10 million and Donna Deitch doesn't really direct another film until Criminal Passion in 1994, uh, which I've never seen. I don't really actually don't, mu- don't know much about it. Um, but that's her last film. She did Angel on My Shoulder in 98, but that's a documentary. Um, so this is essentially, you know, one of uh, well, two. Well, it got made, like you said, again. Yeah this movie shouldn't exist. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like the movie shouldn't exist. Like there isn't, I think it's where it's like, Oh, somebody, I think that's like, I was kind of saying like, this wasn't, this wasn't like someone gave them a chance. Like the showgirls example was like, Oh, is this thing? And it bombed. No one had expectations. No one gave them a chance with this. They made their own chance and, you know, and they did what they wanted to. So it's, it's also like in the context of that about like, what happened to these people, whatever too, like they made that, whatever success it had was fully, you know, them doing that themselves. Like nobody gave them or backed Mm -hmm. them on anything. So that's also part of it as well. Like why, why didn't anything happen after that? Because just like before they made it, no one decided to give a shit, you know? So, Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. What a miracle movie. I want to like look at that because and it and yeah, there's lots of obvious reasons, both you know, that are my fault and you know, the the nature of you know how movie nerds find movies to watch from throughout cinema history, but like I'm trying to think about it. Like my entry point for like lesbian romance uh, was probably before it wasn't that much before portrait of a lady on fire. It was probably Carol, you know? Uh, and even that was, it, it felt, it's just like insane that like, this isn't just like 10 years ago. Desert hearts is like from, from the middle of the 1980s yeah, it's like 40 years old. and, and why? So like, I'm wondering, like, is there what 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 else is out there that I don't know exists? Like, I know that there's gotta there's there's gotta be. This is hopefully going to be just like the first <clears throat> of like an uncovering uh, for for anybody that comes across it. Um, what what else what else should be we looking out for? Did this like I can't imagine what what it'd be like seeing this movie twenty years ago, Molly? Did you like what else is out there that you know of that you would recommend for fans that enjoy of Desert Hearts that enjoy it? What does the algorithm recommend? Um, <laughs> the human algorithm. <laughs> I feel like yeah, we suggested things on HBO Max. Um, <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> well, I feel like we should get we should get into diner, and then maybe after diner we can do some recommendations at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah that works. I we feel can do like that. Molly's Rex. There's, Molly's some, Rex. there's some trash to talk about diner first. Um. Yeah, oh I will. I will also before we get there. It's like eh, um, every time we do a season or whatever, there's always like one or two movies that stick out that like I never would have found unless we did the podcast of the show. You know, it's like well, this is one of those movies where it's just. Um, unless you're exploring and you're open, you're never going to find it. That's what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. I mean, like you got to be looking and you got to be sort of open to different perspectives and whatever. And we do that for fun as like a hobby on the show. And like, yeah, at least once a season, like a movie like sorcerer, I'd never heard of that movie. No idea what the hell it was. Uh, I don't even really love that movie, but it's like such <laughs> like an interesting film that like you just you know you have to like put in the time and like effort and research and be a nerd about it, but like not be a nerd bro about it if that makes sense. Um, <laughs> oh, and I do, I do want to put a plug in because I <clears throat> speaking like you said about like the one movie of each cycle of episodes that comes that comes up, and for me. Um, I, when we did the risque romance episode, you were absent, oh, but yeah. um, I uh, I looked at with uh, Lillian, our guest, um, the Wachowskis Bound from 96, which I had never seen. And I was just like completely blown away, especially because I'm kind of ambivalent about their other movies yeah. um, as directors. And I think there's there's something going on there too, where it's like to go back to what Molly said about kind of the the tenderness aspect of what's happening, um, both in front of and behind the camera, um, and it, it's like this whole other, it's it's just it's insane how it's like this whole other world that um, exists in cinema and uh, just the unfortunate nature of being kind of like a, a nerd bro for so long <laughs> and still admittedly to some degree um keeps us from some of these things 
Okay, time to time to shit on. Speaking diner. of tender, how about those uh, diner scenes <laughs> in uh, diner? Um, I hit yeah. So yikes. yikes is right. I was so when I told you guys I saw this for the first time like five years, and I was like, okay. And then on the rewatch, me and Ma actually watched <laughs> together. I was just like, what? Like I just couldn't. I mean, I'm sure this, watching think, with me didn't mm-hmm. help, but yeah, it didn't help. I mean, you know, I had my own criterion, a commentary track with Molly uh, watching this last time. But the thing that stands out to me about Diner and the reason that I chose it is that it, it is considered, you know, a really, really good film. It has been since it got released. It has this sort of cachet to it. Um, when I thought about movies set in the 50s, I was like, well, Diner's got to be one of them without a doubt. Going back and doing a rewatch, and even on the original watch, I, I'm just not picking up. I'm not picking up even what would stick out to people back in the 1980s. Why this <laughs> would be such a like groundbreaking film or interesting film? It seems kind of plotting to me. The characterizations seem a little bit rote. I, I don't feel like they're all really likable people. I don't know. Help me out, Chris. Is there anything here that sticks out to you that like, you can grab onto? Is you're like, okay, is there something? something here. Oh, I I mentioned this uh, a little while ago, but this is one of those movies that I have a unfortunate, distinct memory of uh, leaving on every time it was on TBS when I was uh, a kid. Okay, gotcha. One of those films. <laughs> uh, that's like me and Mario um, over the last five years. <laughs> but like. It, it, I mean, number one, the edited version for television, and especially through the eyes of like an 11, 12 year old or whatever. Um, I and I hadn't seen it since then, and I was, and so I was like, I was really thinking that I was going to throw on an old, cozy classic to use Molly's word, yeah. and I'm just like from the opening minutes, I don't know, maybe not the opening minutes, but like pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it just is, it's like a different kind of uncovering where I'm just like, oh, wow. Yeah, there. this is, this didn't age well. This didn't <laughs> age all that well. Molly, was it, you'd seen it, obviously seen it before, right? Or no? Yeah, I'd seen it before. I mean, okay. like forever ago, a though. Like ago. Yeah. I, bar- I like, I barely remembered it. But- what, how did it feel different on the rewatch? I don't even, I mean, because I didn't Better have like worse. a strong sense memory of the first time, but like it was, oh, <laughs> it was yeah. like, I, I mean, again, especially like if, you know, we're sort of juxtaposing like desert exactly. hearts to like yeah. this, it's like, again, for all the stuff we talked about, it's a superior film in literally every way. Yeah. And also like the sort of, you know, just honestly, the, what's uh, pathetic this i don't know it's just it's really pathetic like it's like comparatively i would like just the writing the characterization the like again thinking of like that frustrating reality of like said somebody sort of this is a group of people who like busted their ass to like make something really beautiful and heartfelt that like you know you want to keep rewatching and really like is this beautiful piece of art and then it's like people make diner and then they just like all get to keep making stuff forever <laughs> like every single yeah. fucking one of them you know <laughs> and yeah, every single like, person yeah. involved in that movie becomes <laughs> at least a millionaire at some point and it's like really uh, leaves a badass taste in your mouth and you have to think about that too or you're just like 
oh, everybody got to make so many more things. You got to create, you know what I mean? I think that that's, I ultimately imagine if you're like a, you know, somebody who's an artist in any way, like actor, directors and all that, you know, not some of the people, obviously like the cinematographer and stuff, but like just the director, the actors and like desert hearts. It's just like, I don't know. You get to, they didn't like get to like keep creating shit, you know, or like have any art- autonomy mm-hmm. or like funding or sort of, um, you know, kind of support to create things again. Yeah, and you totally. know, everybody in this fucking movie, created like all everybody. the actors and like all the director, right. Yeah. You know, everybody just got to just always have, you know, to varying degrees that they, Oh my God, like fucking Mickey work. It's like 80,000 chances. Right. I mean, Barry yeah. Levinson, <laughs> Barry Levinson gets 8,000 chances to make varying degrees of quality films. You know what I mean? Like everybody gets like so many chances, you know, that's. Ugh, yeah, I was walking through Barry's filmography and I was like, Oof. I would. I had always thought Barry had much more stature in my head. That's probably obviously a bias, right? Um, but yeah. like going through his, you know, like the natural. Okay, cool. Good Morning Vietnam, sure. I mean, you can go through the whole list. I mean, Rain Man probably sticks out as probably the best movie that he's done. But he has a lot of terrible movies. Wag the Dogs, Fear, yeah. Liberty Heights, which is part of a trilogy, technically a Baltimore trilogy that this movie starts out. Um, yeah, he got a thousand chances, and he like he ends his career with what Rock the Caspah, technically open road films. Oh, he has a new one coming out next year, wise guys. Yeah, Rock the was wise like, guys. Uh, like in terms of epic failures, it's near the top of the list. I, I was I had a box office podcast thing going on at the time, and it was like Rock the Caspah was like unbelievable failure, and that's like his thirtieth chance. You know, mm. and it's just, yeah, it's like mind blowing how the industry, I mean, the thing that also sticks out to me with this film is that it's a major studio. It's MGM, right? They produce the movie. Mm-hmm. They also put it out. MGM does test screenings on this movie in St. Louis or in a couple other cities. does incredibly poorly. The people hate the movie. Finder's a terrible movie, <laughs> right? So MGM's sort of like, well, we're not going to put this out. Someone at MGM, I forget how it like kind of works, but like screened it for like, who's the famous New York Times film critic that I'm thinking of? Paul? Vincent Canby? No, 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 no. What's her name? Um, they screened it for her. Pauline Kael? Yes. They screened it for oh. her because she knew somebody associated with the movie. They screen, they steal a print screen it for her she calls mgm and says if you don't release this i'm still gonna write a, a rave review so when we talk about like <laughs> second chances who do you know nepotism it all sort of adds up to being like but what i think what's crazy about it and obviously eye-opening is that those influences and that the that machinery can change culture dramatically right and it makes a movie like diner which, okay, if you saw it back then, it maybe it's like kind of interestingly acted. There's a lot of interesting stars in it. It's not super well written. It doesn't really have an interesting sort of story to tell. It's more vignettes than anything. Um, but it ends up becoming this cultural touchstone. And you're like, well, how did that happen? It happened because, you know, the people that made it were in a position of power. And even when the film wasn't good, didn't test good, they had enough, you know, connections and nepotism to sort of make it get released anyways. So it's like, it's one of those things where it's just like, oh my God, like how, how did we get here? Well, this is how we got there. You know, they had a lot of power and money. Um, is what it comes down to, unfortunately. But, okay, but this, and this is Barry Levinson's first movie. Yeah, yeah his debut movie, so, yeah. 
I'm like, and he like, he's a, he's a Baltimore kid who went to community college, but he is one of those guys that moved to Los Angeles and kind of scrapped, uh, around writing for TV shows and variety shows. Uh, but I mean, it's so it, it it isn't so much of like, it doesn't seem like it's so much of a nepotism thing. It's just like a, uh, like a, like a white guy thing, right? Like failing upwards, but like, you know, like when he swings the, the ball's like 10 times bigger than it is for somebody else. You know what I mean? Like, so he worked hard and he went for it and you know, it's just, and he wrote, he wrote movies for Mel Brooks. Yeah. Mel Brooks before that, directed. Yeah. Mel Brooks yeah, like directly yeah, yeah, told yeah. him, Hey, like, yeah, work on this idea. So like right, even right there, you have Mel Brooks in your corner in your debut film. Yes. It's a little bit different than selling your own house to, to fund a movie. You know what I mean? Yes, exactly. It's like a different yeah. Ball and then, game. Yeah. And so, and I mean, cut to 2023 no, and his, no, his son is making the idol. <laughs> but have you, have you guys seen that yet? No, I've not watched that. Like three episodes. This yeah, is, that's this is un- what it unfortunate gets you. choice. This yeah. is what Hollywood runs on. Uh, <laughs> seriously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the question for you, uh, gentlemen, the question that I really yes. want to ask every time mm-hmm. I watch a movie that's like all, it's like, you know, wall to wall dudes, right? Sure. Where it's like, is this how men see themselves? <laughs> oh, God, no. no. I, I mean, hope it not. It depends. Like, I've certainly known men in my life and have been in social groups where, yeah, I would see that, like, some of the way that men represent, you know, uh, how Diner represents men, you know, maybe not that far off. Um, but in general, I, I would say, like... That's not the majority I, of men. I guess it's just fascinating it, to me how men continually write themselves across like most of cinema, right? Well, men are doing yeah, most of the writing as, dis- as disgusting pigs. Yeah, lovable disgusting pigs. Uninteresting. Like none of the people yeah. well, in this movie. On top of that, on top of just the like really like very whatever gender role shit. Like everyone's just boring. Like nobody yeah. to me is a very like like no one has dimension or depth. All these people are just like there's no really, emotional depth. Yeah, there's no like. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I just I was again because you know of the juxtaposition with this with Desert Hearts is the example today of like again a movie where everyone's you know both of you're saying like oh yeah not much happens it's sort of this quiet little whatever kind of thing but like. Like, so again, a great sort of compliment to the scale or sort of stakes of diner, but it's like the characters and the way that the women Mm -hmm. are the interiority and like the way that the, like women are writing themselves as like actual humans with, you know, Mm -hmm. dimension and like. Like, I just, again, where I'm just like, you have, like, men have so many chances to (laughs) tell men's stories, if you will. And, like, I just am completely, almost universally uncompelled by the stories they choose to tell about themselves, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting... Uh, we we've only made cursory mention of like the whole theme of this cycle of episodes, it being the 1950s, right? Sure. Um, and I, it, it's it's apparent, right, that Levinson, and I mean, I guess not most of his actors here are younger, uh, yeah. but it, this is like this 
ongoing thing, I think, for like mid-century America uh, and all the way into like the 90s. Like there's there was a 2012 Vanity Fair uh, article I found, an anniversary piece on Diner, talking about how it paved the way for the likes of Jerry Seinfeld and Judd Apatow. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, like we've this this really like just kind of like uh, I guess it's become a little more self-aware, like mm-hmm. Jerry, like Jerry Seinfeld's character on Seinfeld is meant to be dislikable, unlikable. Yeah. And like Judd Apatow writes his male characters to like have a heart of gold, but like on the surface be like these really like incorrigible man children. Yeah. And, and, and here with diner, it's just like, it's so unself-aware. Like, even oh, like yeah, the I'll things that. that are supposed yeah. like choices directorial or otherwise, like uh, the fact that we never see Steve Gutenberg's fiance slash wife's face um, throughout the film. Like as uh, I don't know, there's just like so many weird things like this is, is this movie? I also meant to, is this movie the origin of like the Dick in the popcorn box? Thing. I think it is. Uh, so. Why did Wipert ask that question? When we were watching, it? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, maybe, but it it strikes me as I don't think blood, like maybe it was like the represent the original representation of it as a cinema screen, but there's no like there was dudes that had that idea. Like if they put that idea in a movie, it was because it was like a joke when they were kids or something. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, Cause I don't remember that from the TBS version. I just remember screaming the entire film. I was like to all the women when they were having, I'm just like, stand up. What are you doing? Stand like, I know it's just so there's not even like an ounce of like backbone that anyone, like any of like the two women characters have in this movie. It's Mm -hmm. just like, you're right. I, <laughs> you didn't mean to put your dick in the popcorn bucket. Oh, I'm like, oh my god! Like, well, yeah, he was just trying to get comfortable. Stay mad. Like that was like the indignity of having her. Like, I was like, yes, that response is appropriate. And then having his like really, really terrible lackluster excellent. Like and that happened again too with uh with Ellen Barkin and like mm-hmm. and uh, her yeah. him. She's being thanks for respecting me right. enough to not fuck me in front of I your friends. I was like, oh, stand up. I need you to stand up. Like, what are you doing? Which is my husband. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. It's, oh, it was wow. bad. But I guess, anyways, the recommendation for you guys, if you want to offer any recommendations for me, not with the 50s time period, any movie that you feel really captures, really is like, this is men choosing to tell a compelling story about mm, men. Mm. I would love your recommendations. Uh, drinking buddies. <laughs> I have a side offline story about that, but anyways, oh, so no. I come back to me on that one, and I'll ruin drinking buddies for you. Okay, don't ask me later. But anyways, but besides drinking buddies, you think on that? Yeah, that's five. that's a good thinker, Molly. Which is sad. That's um, a good thinker. So <laughs> I know it really is. It really, really is. Uh. I think, okay, so to kind of put a pin on this before we get to your recommendations, Molly, and then I've got some trivia for us as well. I, I the, the question that kind of just like lingered while I like had a stomach ache during the credits of Diner um, w- was essentially like th- both of these movies 
not only took place in the 50s, they took place specifically in 1959. And Diner specifically, like on the New Year's Eve, uh, is where it ends of, you know, leading into the 60s. Yeah. Um, what's, uh, what are we to make of, of this? Like, I think it's, there's something not only going on with, like, obvi- obviously who's telling the story um, and whose perspectives we are actually, like, leaning into and giving um, air to um, in the scripts, but, like, how was it, like, was this significant, like, either being self-aware or otherwise, that this was a really kind of um, turning point in... Uh, at least American, uh, like gender roles and feminism, because like to see it, it just boggles my mind. Like I, I couldn't help, but like go into and like learn about like why Reno, Nevada was like a hotbed for, um, women that wanted to get divorces quickly, uh, in the late fifties. And as well as like how, um, how like, the, the like male chauvinism was y- you know so heavily rooted in um specifically like this kind of encroachment of i don't know of change of progress mm-hmm. you know post world war ii we talked this a little bit dan right when we yeah. um uh talked uh, far from heaven and the majestic um is there is there a significance to that either on purpose or otherwise that like, this is like, I guess I've never really thought about it because I obviously wasn't alive back then. And I feel like that's almost like an empty chunk of American history. Like yeah, the fifties into the sixties for me. Well, I, what, what, what's that to figure I out? I mean, I, I can speak to the diner part of it pretty easily. Like this is like, a, it's a movie that purports or basically is stating an ideology. And that ideology is that, there were times in this country that were good and were great and they were amazing and we should remember them. And it creates this sort of nostalgia disease about the past. And like, that's why diner, I think connected with a lot of people when it came out because it came out, you know, boomers boomers in the eighties. It's like, Oh yeah. I remember being, you know, 23 (laughs) back then and doing this stupid stuff and like, Oh yeah, it's silly, but it creates this weird sort of feedback loop in people's memories or something that tells them that no, the past was better. The past was better or these certain aspects of the past were a better world. And it almost becomes like, I'm going to sound like an idiot, but I'm saying it's almost becomes like a utopianism or fundamentalism, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like these values that we quote unquote remember that were there are somehow missing now and we need to bring them back. And you start you start bringing them back by remembering them and codifying them. And that's like what a movie like Diner does. It says, hey, the 50s were like an interesting, fascinating time. Um, we should remember them fondly because we did all these like crazy things like put a dick in a bat and nothing about like when you really <laughs> think of it on the face of it, it's so fucked up. Because, it, well, because like, it's always the nostalgias for white men. Correct. Yes. Well, because white men made it. Right. And it's like, they're not going <laughs> to yeah. like tell a great story about like somebody else. They're going to tell a great story about themselves. Right. Because you can't really, I mean, you can try, but it's just doesn't, you can't get away with the fantasy of like <laughs> making a nostalgic movie about women in the fifties. Like, yeah. 
in some sort of like yeah utopian kind of way or like anybody who's not white like yeah. <laughs> i mean you people can but like that's not gonna ring true i think there's an element that can sort of like you can suspend disbelief and be like yeah that's probably what it was like because yeah maybe it did feel like that for some dudes of the 50s i don't know you know like yeah but they were the only one that had the privilege to sort of like indulge in that kind of nostalgia that it like may possibly, right. Mm, like imagine mm-hmm. that it exactly. could have been yeah. true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, desert hearts is a completely different story, right? It's, I don't know. There's something about it that just viewing it through the lens of the fifties, it, it rewrites history in a sense. Right. Well, because I, I that's what that, I was saying in the yeah. beginning. It's like political in the sense of like, you literally, nobody's story like that gets to be told. Exactly, you know what yeah. I mean? But there was absolutely people like women and, you know, any number of other things, but like, we're just telling like a just run of the mill human story can be political in the sense of like, it's revolutionary because like literally nobody else, there's no other way to access that kind of story, you know? Yeah. Because we just don't show them. We don't tell them people aren't allowed to write them, but like there's people. Yeah. Yeah, it's like so. been redacted, that viewpoint. Um, any suggestions for the audience, Molly, of next steps? If they check out Desert Hearts, anything that uh, that comes to mind? I mean, I don't, like, yeah, if you, I mean, I don't think there's anything, like, where it's, like, well, I don't whatever. know, like, I mean, quite like yeah. Desert Hearts. But I think if you're looking for, like, films that, don't center men (laughs) and maybe you're like i mean lesbian love stories are not are just films that don't center relations men i mean you know there's um girlfriends which is not to be confused with the upn series uh girlfriends which is (laughs) i was gonna say (laughs) no that's it's a indie film um look it up um body while uh and uh let's see um the nineties, the incredible true story of two girls in love, um, is like a high school lesbian romance from like 93, 94, maybe or something. Um, but I'm a cheerleader is also another classic. I'm thinking of like, I'm trying to think of stuff that like feels a little like fun when you watch it too. If the, unlike does like desert hearts where it's not sort of, there's, there's other things, but like where it's a little more like in the drama, um, intense, uh, uh, and I would argue, it's not a lesbian love story, but doesn't center Romeo Michelle's high school union. I will yeah. go to bat for that <laughs> sure. every time because that is a beautiful mm-hmm. little movie that's just all about <laughs> loving your life and that literally <laughs> men are fucking idiots and you don't need them. Trivia. Let's close out with some trivia. Thank you. All right. Uh, I got five questions for you, Molly. Here's how it goes for this season. Um, I'm going to read from a screenplay of a film that was released in the 1980s but took place in the 1950s. Not one of the ones we just discussed. Um, they're all pretty, I think, big, well-known films, uh, but I'm only going to read the narration in just a few sentences to see if you can guess what movie it is. Right, it takes place it. in the 1950s, came out in the 1980s. We're going to start with an easy one. Exterior, Welton Academy, Main Lawn, Day. Welton Academy is a cluster of traditional weathered stone buildings. The time is 1959, but at Welton, this is irrelevant. This school, with its traditions, is completely isolated from the politics or trends of the outside world. Uh, Am I supposed to answer? Yeah, you can guess. Go for it. No, we both. Yeah, guess gets to guess first. 
Oh, Dead Poets Society. Yeah, that's what this is. All right. All right. Good, good, good. Uh, Next up, Interior, Joey's Pelham Parkway House, Living Room Night, February 14, 1951. Lenore, Joey's wife, watches the sixth Robinson LaMotta fight on Joey's new television console. Joey walks by on his way to another room but stops to watch. Lenore is not a fight fan but is caught up in the fight anyway. Mm, I don't know. Am I supposed to? Oh, am I supposed to ask? Yeah, yeah go for it. Ra- go for it. Raging Bull? Yeah. Molly's yeah. much better at this than <laughs> 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 you, Dan. You see, Molly's much better at this. <laughs> Way better. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good, good. Let, let's see if you can do the hat trick, Molly. What's the hat um, trick? Insert what? new. Sp- three in a row. Or three goals. Three in yeah. a row. Oh, okay. It's a sports <laughs> metaphor, Molly. Oh, it's a guy yeah. thing. Uh, insert newspaper. The date is March 18, 1955. On the back of the newspaper is an automobile, automobile advertisement with a picture of a, quote, new 1955 Studebaker. The copy clearly says, you'll be noticed driving the car of the future, the all-new 1955 Studebaker. Hmm. Uh, I have no idea. Do uh, I don't know. That's the future? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> wow that, that's impressive okay uh next one this is number four what happens <clears> if what's <throat> the call that you get four uh, i don't know if that's a um, thing. yeah i don't <laughs> know <laughs> why, is, it a hat? why is there something for three yeah. but not four or five it's a, hat trick. It's, a it's a sticky wicket yeah sticky i think wicket. i don't want um, it then interior plymouth fury assembly line superimposed detroit 1957 the plant is state-of-the-art for 57 manual labor is prevalent no computers little automation just plain hard work and the seething anger that goes with it you can see it in the eyes of the assembly line workers some of them are black most are white all of them sweat grimy hands work fast to marry engine blocked chassis no idea Molly? <laughs> um, I can't. I feel like I want to ask. Can I ask? Can I ask for other future okay. information? Can I ask for like the year yeah, yeah. from the, the year the movie came out? Oh, yeah, that's good. Uh, 1983. Ooh. Okay. That's a no idea. Um, Any other clues? Based on a Stephen King novel. Oh, Christine. Yeah. Yeah, yes. good work. All right, last one. Uh, I don't know about this one. I've never seen this movie, but um, <laughs> I was, I was kind of scraping. But I, th- I think you'll get it. I, I think, I don't know. Interior, Young Pink's Mother's House, day 1950. Young, P- Young Pink, now age 10, uh, comes home from school. His mother is still out at work. He makes himself a piece of bread and jam. He wanders up the stairs and hovers outside her bedroom. The door is open. He looks inside. He decides to venture in. Nervously, he peeks inside drawers of underwear, examining a voluminous pink bra. He slowly opens a bottom drawer and discovers his father's uniform wrapped in tissue. He puts on the jacket, the tat, and the Sam Brown with revolver holster. He toys with the gun and live ammunition that he has discovered. Mm. It sounds familiar, but I can't place it. Modino. I don't know. This one might be the one that stumps me. I don't know. Let's get a clue. <laughs> Year of release, nineteen eighty-two. Sentence. Or just like I feel like I'm like a spelling bee. Nineteen eighty-two. Yeah, it's original origin. So it came out in nineteen eighty-two. <laughs> yeah, like a word mm-hmm, origin. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
What else you got? Bro? Screenplay was written by a musician. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Great balls of fire. Uh, <laughs> um, it was directed by Alan Parker, the same director as Fame and Avita. Um, okay, let me think on this now. Uh, 42. Oh, uh, what the fuck's it called? Uh, the Pink Floyd movie, right? Yeah, The Wall. wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) There you go. Oh my gosh. Uh, that was a rough one. Sorry guys, but, uh, good work, Molly, on the, on the first three and then the fourth with the assist. Uh, Dan, you were zero for five that round. This is what it is. Um, coming up on Film Trace, we have uh, an episode featuring uh, Andrea Gomez from Collider. Very excited to have her on the show. Uh, awesome writer and critic. Um, talking about The Last Picture Show and Lenny um, from the 70s, both set in the 1950s. Nice. Thank you, Molly, so much for joining us. Yeah, happy to be back. And remember, everyone who's listening, if you want to support the podcast and support my friends, make sure you complain about me being on the show because that's how they know they made oh, it. Oh yeah. I have, I have a slight correction to make. You were on the show more recently than body heat. We talked the game and insomnia. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. But it's still been a while. In, that was a while May of ago. last year. That was, that was May of last yeah, year. So yeah. It was a year ago. Okay. So it's been a while. It's been a while. Mm-hmm. But anyways, see, in so the comments, year, well, comment below that I'm annoying <laughs> and I have an annoying voice or we, something, but just, you know, comment below. <laughs> and that's how they know the video got it's a complete. All right. Thanks again, Molly. Uh, this has been Film Trace. <laughs> <laughs>